We Look Shit Up, a weekly podcast where we channel our obsessive personalities and our love of TV and movies and share the interesting trivia we find with you. I'm Kevin. I'm Rachel. And thanks for joining us today. Today is our final episode of our series, Remembering the Waco Siege. If you remember, this is about the Paramount Network show, Waco. The show is about a weeks-long siege of a building with members of what some consider a cult or religious sect, the Branch Davidians. They refused to come out. Men, women, and children were inside, and more than 70 people, including children, ended up dying at the end of the siege in a fire that concluded the 51-day standoff. I talked about this part of the story from the Branch Davidian standpoint. And so in this episode, Kevin's going to be looking at how the Paramount Network show portrayed the actions of the FBI and the government during the siege. Yeah, and I'm going to be taking it from that vantage point. So it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm siding with the government, but just know that where my information is coming from and the perspective that I'm giving is the perspective of the government, meaning ATF, FBI, and people involved on that side of the siege. Is Waco and what happened there something that you still think about? Yeah, forever. Uh, That will never stop. That's former Austin police negotiator Rick Shirley, who was part of the negotiations team during the siege. He even spoke to members of the Brant Davidians during that standoff. You'll hear parts of our conversation with Shirley throughout this episode. He helps us understand what it was like during the siege and what was true to life in the TV series and what was a little bit off. You don't necessarily have to have watched the TV series, although that also helps, but I'd really suggest listening to our first three episodes before tackling this one. So now with this one, though, let's start with the initial raid. If you remember, after the ATF launched its investigation, it planned to get to that Mount Carmel compound and to look inside, serve a search warrant and arrest warrant. I think there were three main questions here on the government side when comparing it to the show. And those are, did the ATF really go ahead with the assault even after an agent warned them that the Davidians knew about the raid? Question two is who shot first? And question three is how did the ATF get military support? In our first episodes, we established that investigators found that yes, there really were numerous illegal weapons at the ranch, at the compound of the Branch Davidians, and that the ATF had probable cause to search the Davidian compound. A U.S. Treasury Department report found that the ATF had problems with the way it gathered intelligence about the Davidians and that the ATF had not exhausted all options before going ahead with the raid, so it found things both supporting and criticizing how the ATF handled the raid in the lead-up to it. And I talked about this a little bit in one of our last episodes, but if you're wondering why it was the Treasury Department report, that's because the ATF was actually part of the U.S. Treasury Department at the time. So as you're hearing that, that's why it's the one reviewing everything that's going on, at least immediately afterward. So yes, what happened at the raid was much like in the show, the undercover agent Robert Rodriguez warned ATF leadership that the Davidians had been tipped off. And here's a quote from that government report. Rodriguez announced that Koresh was agitated and had said ATF and National Guard were coming. Then an assistant special agent in charge responded, asking Rodriguez if he had seen any guns or if he had heard talk about guns or saw people hurrying around. Rodriguez said no to all of those questions. 
and he had a similar conversation with someone else in leadership. The people in charge then decided to go ahead with the raid and move quickly. Witnesses said that Rodriguez seemed distraught at that point. So I think the show did a fairly good job of showing this. I'm not sure if he actually tried to stop vehicles as they drove up during the show, but at least the basics of that seem accurate. If you remember, he makes that phone call and they ask him some of those specific questions and he says, no, I can't prove that they were getting guns or something along those lines. But as we've said in other episodes, even when shows do a good job at sticking with the facts, there are always going to be a bit of dialogue or things that are a little bit just for TV. So as far as with the basics of the situation, it seems like they did a good job of portraying that. So the next thing that happens is a more than two hour gun battle after the ATF arrives where agents and Davidians die. Investigators later conclude, quote, on February 28th, 1993, near Waco, Texas, a major law enforcement operation failed. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms tried to carry out a flawed raid plan based on one critical element, the element of surprise. Despite knowing in advance that the element of surprise was lost, the raid commanders made the decision to go forward. So that, I think, really answers the first question. The government looked into the actions of the ATF and found that yes, there were problems, and yes, command did go ahead with the raid, even though that they were tipped off that the Davidians knew. So the next question I want to explore is who shot first? And Rachel, you talked about this a little bit in your last episode too, about how they portray that. Each side says that the other fired the initial shots. The show doesn't completely answer this as I call, but as I remember it, it showed ATF agents shooting dogs on the property. And then there is confusion about how the shots started. And when I went back and watched the episode recap, it really left with me with the impression, at least the recap, that the confusion was mostly on the ATF side and that the shot dogs made agents assume that the Davidians were shooting at them. So to answer what really happened, we're gonna go back to that treasury report. And it states that as the ATF arrives, the first round of agents get out with fire extinguishers to use against the dogs at the compound. Not quite sure how that works, but it's apparently supposed to keep the dogs at bay. So they use the fire extinguisher against the dogs. Then Koresh comes out to ask what's going on, and the agents state that they're with the ATF, they have a warrant, and to freeze and get down. Koresh then goes back inside, and gunfire begins to burst through the door, even with the door bowing out and gunfire toward the agents. So PBS Frontline wrote in 1995, that who shot first was still in dispute. ATF agents testified that the Davidians shot first. However, one agent told an investigator after the raid that the agent might have shot first to kill one of the dogs, but later he retracted that statement. And the Davidians that survived say the government shot first. Again though, the official review states that the Davidians shot first through the door. It also said that the ATF was trained so that they might hear the gunshots of the team handling the dogs if the fire extinguishers didn't work. So they knew that they could hear gunshots that would not be from the Davidians initially. So the series really might leave you with some impressions, but that's what the government analysis found was they believed that the Davidians shot first. So in the third question, I want to look at military support. And I know Rachel David Thibodeau, one of the Branch Davidians, wrote a little bit about military support and how he thinks um, the government ended up getting that for this operation. Yeah. So I was reading David Thibodeau's book, Waco, A Survivor's Story. And here's how he describes that in the book. He says, 
Under federal law, the U.S. Armed Services can only aid law enforcement officers if narcotics are involved. So the ATF lied, saying we were operating a drug lab. This was the hidden reason for the false accusations on this score. And that's really all he says about it. His mindset is pretty clear in the book that it was just a complete fabrication by the ATF in order to get military support. So the government investigators found that the ATF did include some information about possible drugs on the property when it applied to get some free, and that's the key word, military assistance. What it really came down to was who was paying for the military help, not whether the military could be there. So the Treasury Review found that in meetings with military members to try to get their assistance on the raid, the ETF was told that there had to be a drug connection in order for the military to cover the costs. Otherwise, the ATF would have to reimburse the military for the expenses. So then the ATF started to look to see if there was a drug connection or nexus to the Davidians and the compound. And an ATF agent heard from an informant that there was a meth lab at the compound when Koresh took over and that the sheriff's office had planned to seize it. And if you want to hear some more about that, we actually talk about this in one of our earlier episodes. So there is an element of truth to this, that there was at least these reports that there had been a meth lab at the property at some time. I'm not saying that Koresh started a meth lab and neither were the government investigators at that time. They were just saying that there was information that that property had had a meth lab on it at some point. However, then the agent found no evidence of the equipment ever being collected, and an undercover agent apparently heard Caress say that the compound would be a great place for a meth lab. One of the Davidians had also been convicted for possession of amphetamines at one point, and 10 others were believed to be involved with some kind of drug activity. And that includes things from arrests to just investigations. So the ATF presented that information that I just told you to the people at the Texas Guard and to the U.S. military, and they signed off, pretty much saying that that was enough of a drug connection. The Treasury report notes that, quote, because there is no formal standard by which the military defines a drug nexus in law enforcement investigation, a substance review of this decision cannot be concluded. So pretty much to me, it seems like they were allowed to consider whatever they wanted as a drug connection. Just this information about any sort of thing related to drugs at the property or with the members was enough for this military assistance that was free. Again, that's the big thing. This was about money and who would pay for the assistance, not if the military could or would help out. So the investigation, at least in the way I read, suggests the claim that the ATF made up the drug charges in order to get the military help isn't true. The Government Accountability Office looks at how money is spent in the government, and it found that the ATF and the military followed the law as well, and only 14% of the total bill was covered under this drug connection clause where the ATF wouldn't have to pay back the military. So there was actually a lot that did have to be paid back. And if you remember, at the beginning, the military was mainly helping with a helicopter, and then the Texas Guard and U.S. military also offered advice, recon work from the air, and also the use of training facilities. So then there's the question of the military during the siege, and we'll get into that in a minute. But before we go any further, I know this can be some really heavy stuff, so I want to look at some of the writing and production aspects of the show before we start to ask more questions about the most tragic aspects of the story. Rachel, does that sound good to you? Going into kind of the production things and what's kind of true to life? 
That sounds great. Let's do it. So during your interview with the APD negotiator, did you speak to him about this? Yes, he did talk about this, and he watches a lot of the things related to what happened in Waco. And this series is no exception. I asked about what was true and what wasn't. Definitely was a lot of Hollywood involved, but uh, there was also some, some factual stuff that was presented as well. And they showed them negotiating inside of a military-type tent. And they had these big reel-to-reel tape recorders uh, they were recording everything on, which would be nice, but usually you don't have that kind of money to be able to afford those kind of things in your budget. So we were using just a little cassette recorder <laughs> that sat on the desk and and plugged into the uh, negotiator rescue phone that, we, that the FBI had there. And so just, you know, little things like that where you were there that you would know all these things were, were glaring uh, at the time and kind of kind of a laughable situation, I guess, the way they presented it. And I thought that was crazy to hear. Again, that's APD negotiator Rick Shirley. You know, sometimes you think that these are big unlimited budgets in operations like this, but they were using a tape recorder. There was also some some factual stuff that was presented as well. I thought the, the actor um, that played the part of David Koresh, I thought he did a good job of of representing that personality. Shirley points out how Michael Shannon's character, Gary Nessner, was on the phone negotiating throughout the Waco siege in the show, but that wasn't really how it happened. They had him doing all the negotiations, and I don't, I don't know if Gary even did any of the negotiations. He was more in a supervisory role for the team. Nessner even writes in his book, quote, My job was to guide strategy, not to be the person on the phone. In our last episode, we talked about how the real Gary Nessner wasn't at the Ruby Ridge standoff like the show portrayed. He was celebrating his anniversary in Bermuda at the time. Former APD negotiator Rick Shirley believes the show really focused on David Thibodeau's viewpoint, and he thinks that could hurt how people view what happened at Waco. He also read David Thibodeau's book. You know, he tried to, in his book, he tried to minimize the impact of Koresh's relationship with underage uh, women, girls, and he also tried to minimize the, the punitive aspect of Koresh's personality and what he did business. And that came out in that series as well. I, I think that probably, and also the way it ended, that was that was not true. He's talking about something we touched on in our last episode, after the fire started. Where they showed the... Uh, the leader of the uh, FBI HRT going up to Rachel Koresh and trying to talk to her from the end of the bus there, that, that didn't happen. But government reports do state that an FBI agent went into the building to rescue a Davidian. It just wasn't the head of the hostage rescue team or Rachel Koresh. That's interesting what he said about David Thibodeau's book, and I felt the same way reading it. David Thibodeau addresses the underage relationships that Koresh had, but he says it in sort of an offhand way. He says that he definitely didn't approve of it and it made him uncomfortable, but then dismisses it like at the same time, it's not really a big deal. Yeah, and I think um, in watching this, that that's something really to remember with the show is that at least the feeling I get is rather than trying to make very firm conclusions about what happened, it really tries to show things from the perspective of the Davidians and then from the other perspective as well. So that's what I talked to Rick Shirley about when it comes to um, the show and some of the authenticity of what was going on there. Now I want to get back to the siege. 
So the show's portrayal of the standoff has a lot of things that are pulled directly from what really happened. Koresh backed out of deals several times, according to Nessner, and official records, you know, deals to come out of the compound. And the negotiators did actually do things like exchange videos as part of a negotiation process. If you remember, negotiators talked about themselves and their families, and Koresh did the same. And then they sent the video of the kids from the compound being held by the state and waiting for the parents, the kids that had already been released. So what was it like, though, to be part of that negotiations team? Shirley says that when he got there, the assistant special agent in charge, or ASAC, and a Texas Department of Public Safety negotiator were the only two people in the part of the building where he was, um, with Larry Lynch of the sheriff's office and Byron Sage of the FBI in another location. Shirley says a lot of agents involved in the firefight were also coming into that area where he was. And so they were basically had that sleeping bags all all over the place with all these people trying to rest up while they were doing negotiating and. Um, that was kind of a bad situation. So when we got there, you could tell that the, the ATF ASAC and the, the DPS negotiator had kind of they kind of hit a wall where they were pretty much in shock, just like a lot of the people that had actually been involved in the firefight were. And so to help them, we immediately got our equipment and started setting up around them and setting up a, a full negotiations operation. Shirley says he was in Waco for about 30 days of the 51-day siege because the Austin Police Department had started rotating out negotiators. He mainly worked in a support role. But myself and one other APD negotiator actually were on the phone talking to some French civilians. And I asked him what stood out, and Shirley explained that after doing the job for a long time, negotiations can start to seem a little bit similar to one another. What might seem unusual or extraordinary to an outsider might seem more normal to him. But he did mention one situation that Gary Nessner also talks about. Nessner writes in his book that Koresh would go on long religious talks at night that they begin to call Bible babble, but there was a point where he talked about something else. Nessner remembers one moment when Koresh asked about what negotiators would eat. The fast food restaurant Whataburger was a regular stop for negotiators at the time, as the only place open late in the area. Nessner writes Koresh responded saying, quote, Whataburger? That meat is terrible. If it turns out that I am the son of God, the world will find out about Whataburger. While Shirley remembers the wording slightly differently, it's a moment that also stuck with him. I thought that the situation with the Whataburger thing was kind of stuck out in my mind because it was kind of a, in one way a humorous moment and in one way, another way it was kind of a, a telling situation about the, the frame of mind of the person we were talking to, Koresh. Like in the show, Nessner's book talks about the contrast between the negotiation team and the tactical side of things. We talked about this a bit in one of our last episodes, but the differences between the two were apparent from the beginning. Negotiator Nessner writes that the head of the hostage rescue team boarded an executive jet with senior officials to get to the Waco site. Nessner, who is leading up negotiations, took a slower propeller plane. He writes that it was an indication of the mindset at the time. The tactical side needed to arrive first, and Shirley saw some differences too. And I think I think that really had a lot to do with the Waco situation. There was a lot of uh, a lot of a uh, disconnect and a lot of breakdown between the negotiating team and command, and uh, that that created a lot of problems. 
Carrie Nessner writes that the morning after authorities delivered milk for the children and started building more trust, the FBI cut the power to the compound. And yes, the high-powered lights, the clearing away of trash and other things with combat engineering vehicles that look like tanks, including smashing a car and the playing of loud noises that included dying rabbit sounds and the song, These Boots Are Made For Walking, that all really happened. Nessner saw the tactical and negotiation teams working at cross purposes at times. And we could go point by point through all the things that happened in the show, but a lot of the major events, like the ones I just mentioned, really did happen. And one of the things, Rachel, I know you were looking up while watching the show was the use of CS gas, a kind of tear gas. The Waco series showed barrels of it and what looked like tanks pumping it into the building. And yes, you can watch the real footage of armored vehicles pumping the gas into the buildings. The show also mentions that CS was banned for international warfare. Here's the truth. The rules to ban CS tear gas in international warfare under the Chemical Weapons Convention were finalized before the raid in early 1993, but they didn't go into effect until 1997. This is all according to a PolitiFact article. However, that article also found that the very same rules banning CS on the battlefield specifically allow tear gas for domestic law enforcement. PolitiFact also talked to experts who said, Part of the reason CS gas isn't allowed on the battlefield is because in war, soldiers can't determine what kind of gas their opponents are using against them, and that there are few alternatives to tear gas when doing riot control. And for sticklers out there, chemistry majors, I know CS isn't technically a gas. CS is actually mixed with something else to get it airborne, but it's commonly called tear gas, so you might hear me refer to it from here on and already as CS, CS gas, or tear gas. What I'm talking about is this mixture that they used in the standoff. So although legal, there is more to consider. This comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website on riot control agents, which include CS gas. Quote, long-lasting exposure to large dose of riot control agent, especially in closed setting, may cause severe effects such as the following. Blindness, glaucoma, immediate death due to severe chemical burns to the throat and lungs, respiratory failure possibly resulting in death. And here, an excerpt from the LA Times article in 1995 about this. Quote, the wooden structures were filled with the gas over the next six hours before the building erupted into flames, leaving more than 80 people dead, including all of the children. Before giving the order to advance, Reno, and again, that's Janet Reno, who is the attorney general at the time, Reno said that she was assured by military experts that CS gas would cause no serious harm or permanent damage to the children of the besieged cult members. However, it is now clear that medical literature and manufacturers' warnings available at the time dispute that conclusion. CS gas is potentially so hazardous when applied to confined spaces that California prison guards are cautioned against using it in the cells of unruly inmates. A Sherman Oaks company suspended sales of CS to the Israeli government in 1988 after the same time Amnesty International linked the gas to the deaths of Palestinians in homes and other buildings in the occupied territories. Although adults can withstand CS exposure by wearing gas masks and the Davidian compound was well stocked with military equipment, no masks were available to properly fit children." End quote. A $17 million independent review from the special counsel investigating what happened in Waco also looked at the issue of gas. 
And I think its review is very important because it came out in 2000 after other things that we've looked at. It also came out in part because of some new information that critics saw as potentially damning for the government. And I did get this report from a site that collects documents to make public, but it was not an official government site. It does though match some of the accounts reported about its contents, and I don't have any reason to doubt its authenticity. Another side note, I might also refer to this as the Danforth Report after the special counsel and former Republican U.S. Senator John Danforth, who was in charge of it. So the report notes that one of the doctors the special counsel and his team spoke with said that if people can't leave a room, quote, there is a distinct possibility that this kind of CS exposure can significantly contribute or even cause lethal effects. But the report also found, quote, no forensic pathologist who has examined evidence has found any indication that tear gas killed any Davidian. So one of the toxicologists found that the chemical used to help deliver the CS could have led to some of the Davidians to become unconscious from smoke inhalation slightly before they normally would have, um, and that the mixture of chemicals is, makes it really hard to figure out how an individual person will react. Another part of the report concluded that if the Davidians weren't able to leave or didn't leave despite the horrible effects, they could also die or the gas could lead to death. However, as long as the Davidians could move around and had those gas masks, that that wouldn't have happened. The Danforth report found that the CS did not cause or lead to the fire. And the report also found that experts who consulted Attorney General Janet Reno, who signed off on the plan, told her that the gas could not be lethal or cause permanent injury. And the report found the evidence pretty much lined up with the scientific findings at that time. But there were kids there, and this was a group of people who refused to leave the building. In an opinion column in the New York Times about this report and the issue of the use of CS, an author writes, quote, nevertheless, the tragedy need not have happened at all. The one thing the FBI agents always had on their side was time. Miss Reno went along with the FBI's assault proposals partially on the grounds, never substantiated, that children were being sexually abused inside the compound. The agent should have been ordered to starve the cult out and hold the tanks and tear gas. Mr. Koresh might have still orchestrated the same suicidal endgame, but the country would have been spared years of doubts about the wisdom and integrity of its government. That's as far as I'll go about the use of CS gas. So I think that that's all really important information to know, and it adds context to what you watch in the show because they don't really have the opportunity to get into all of those specifics. The Branch Davidians now believe that gas never should have been used in the first place and that eventually they would have come out peacefully. Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to get too much into this, but you have to also remember that the FBI and Janet Reno, uh, the attorney general at the time, made this decision based on the belief that Koresh was making empty promises to come out and that he had no intention of ever leaving the compound. And so after 51, or, you know, at that 51 day mark, they believed they needed to start doing something to get them out and gas is what they chose. And then there's the fire. One of the biggest questions at the close of the siege is how did the fire start? The government begins inserting CS gas and eventually this fire breaks out. And the show I felt heavily leaned toward the position that it was the government that had started the fire and that the scene with the radio host even suggests that the CS gas might have been what caused it. And I don't think the show suggests that the government intentionally started the fire, but it suggests that the government pretty much accidentally started it. 
The executive producers say that they studied depositions and autopsy reports, and they felt like at the end of the show, they had to take a stand um, using what they had studied and the evidence that they had examined to show what they believe happened. And they say that the scene with the radio DJ speaks to that. The fire analysis is part of the government special counsel report and it found that the Davidians could have left the building, except for the Davidians in the bunker that might have become trapped during all of this. The report states that many Davidians did not want to escape. One Davidian who made it to safety tried to go back into the fire and wouldn't say where the children were in the building, wouldn't tell the government that. One Davidian said that he saw others make no effort to leave, and the report says that he expressed remorse that he did not die with the others. The government also had hidden listening devices in the building. Investigators believe support the belief that the Davidians started the fire themselves. Quote, an April 18th intercept records a conversation between Steven Schneider of the Davidians indicating a conspiracy to start a fire. During that conversation, Schneider joked that another Davidian had always wanted to be a quote, charcoal briquette. Another Davidian stated that, I know there's nothing like a good fire. On April 19th, between the beginning of the tear gas insertion operation at approximately 6 a.m. and approximately 7.25 a.m., the Title III intercepts recorded the following statements. Need fuel? Do you want it poured? Have you poured it yet? Did you pour it yet? David said pour it, right? David said, we have to get the fuel on. We want the fuel. They got some fuel around here. Have you got the fuel, the fuel ready? I've already poured it. It's already poured. Yeah, we've been pouring it, pouring it already. Real quickly, can you order the fire? Yes. You got to put the fuel in there too. We've got it poured already. Is there a way to spread fuel in here? So we only light it first when they come in with the tank, right? Right as they're coming in? That's secure. We should get more hay in here. You have to spread it, so get started, okay? The report continues with, quote, These statements preceded the sighting of fire by several hours, which is further proof that the Davidians intended to set the fire to the complex well in advance of actually lighting the fires. Much closer to the time of the fire, from approximately 11.17 a.m. to 12.04 p.m., Title III intercepts recorded the following statements from inside the complex. Do you think I could light this soon? I want a fire on the front. You two can go. Keep that fire going. Keep it. The only plausible explanation for these comments is that some of the Davidians were executing their plan to start a fire." End quote. And I know, Rachel, the Davidians say this was something completely different. Yeah, so in some of the things I looked at, the Davidians claim that what those recordings are showing is not them planning to start a fire, but rather that they were lighting and preparing Molotov cocktails that they were planning to throw at the tanks when the tanks came into the building. So in a way, that is still a fire, just not necessarily intentionally planning to start a fire in the building. The report also looked at infrared video, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. It concluded with the infrared video, again, specifically looking at the fires, that the Davidians started the fire and that it started in three different points simultaneously. An accelerant detection dog and the infrared tapes also show accelerants were used where the fires started. The report also uses Koresh's teachings to try to establish the mindset of the Davidians. 
um, it says that some of the survivors stated that they remember Koresh saying that fire was an acceptable way to die, or that he had a dream that he would die in a great fire. And the report also mentions some other reasonings with the thinking of the Davidians, or at least with David Koresh, their leader. The other thing that the report found is that an FBI agent fired three pyrotechnic tear gas rounds at a concrete construction pit with water that was downwind from the complex about four hours before the fire. And that might not seem like a huge deal, except that until the late 90s, the public and investigators didn't know that this happened. Now, this was new evidence that the report confirmed and discovered that the FBI and Justice Department did not disclose during the investigations. However, the review found that those rounds were not the cause of the fire. So again, the report overall, though, finds the Davidians intentionally started the fire based on everything else that they reviewed. I should point out that the libertarian think tank Cato Institute criticized the special counsel's report and its findings. However, Special Counsel Danforth says he is confident in the results. And here are the summary of findings from the report. Quote, The government of the United States and its agents are not responsible for the April 19, 1993 tragedy at Waco. The government, A, did not cause the fire. B, did not direct gunfire at the Branch Davidian complex. And C, did not improperly employ the armed forces of the United States. Responsibility for the tragedy of Waco rests with certain of the Branch Davidians and their leader, Vernon Howell, also known as David Koresh, who A. shot and killed four ATF agents on February 28, 1993, and wounded 20 others. B. refused to exit the complex peacefully during the 51-day standoff that followed the ATF raid, despite extensive efforts and concessions by negotiators for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. C. Directed gunfire at FBI agents who were inserting tear gas into the complex on April 19, 1993. D. Spread fuel throughout the main structure of the complex and ignited it in at least three places, causing the fire which resulted in the deaths of those Branch Davidians not killed by their own gunfire, and E, killed some of their own people by gunfire, including at least seven children. There is so much more we can get into after that report and after the show. A lawsuit ended up largely absolving the government. We can get deeper into individual claims in that lawsuit. We could get into small details about autopsies. We could examine what happened on the day of this fire in specific parts of the building, what some individual people were doing or how they died. But right now we're going to wrap up this podcast. We have all of our research linked in the show notes if you want to learn more on your own. We will never fully be able to know the thoughts of the Davidians, agents, or investigators, their exact thoughts. Your opinion of what happened will always be colored by your perception, and that's what makes this so difficult in even researching. But now you've heard what we know, so you can be the judge and you can form your own opinions about how the show portrayed what happened. We went much further even than we thought we would, and I know this got a little bit deeper than just the show, but we think it's important. So now we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with just a couple pieces of fact or fiction. Okay, fact or fiction, Rachel. As of 1999, most Americans believed that there was a government cover-up of what happened at Waco. Fact or fiction? Um, fact. 
fact, a CBS News poll in 1999 found that 62% of Americans believe that there was a cover-up and only 25% deny a cover-up happened. However, more Americans believe that the Branch Davidians are to blame for what happened than the FBI, Janet Reno, or the ATF. Okay, last one. Rachel, many of the actors had a hard time shooting the scenes where their characters died, partially because those scenes were shot early on in the production schedule and they still had to act in other scenes after filming those dramatic moments. Fact or fiction? It's cheating because I know the answer. <laughs> fiction. That is fiction. The executive producers tried to schedule the scenes where the actor's character dies as their final scenes that they would film. They said that there was a lot, a big sense of loss when doing those scenes. And there's just so much that went into this. There's so much about the production of the show that we could still get into. One resource that I do want you to, that I do want to point you to is Paramount Network. And we've talked about this, does, and this show isn't sponsored by Paramount Network in any way. But they do a documentary uh, style thing where they show some of what really happened. And they also do some behind the scenes of the show. So I think that's a great place if you want to learn even more about the production of what happened. Um, you know, how they shot those fire scenes. We didn't go as much into the production as we typically do in some of our episodes. Their behind the scenes stuff is really great. Um, you can watch the actors talking kind of about learning about their characters and what they were trying to portray and how they feel about everything now. It's really interesting to watch um, Taylor Kitsch dressed like David Koresh um, talking about his character um, and to, to listen to what the executive producers have to say as well as some survivors who helped consult on the show. It's, it's definitely an interesting resource. And that will conclude our final episode of Remembering the Waco Siege, our series about the Paramount Network show, Waco. If you enjoyed this or if you learned, you took something from it, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you're listening to this. We'll really appreciate it. Yeah, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at We Look Shit Up. And if you want to email us, you can email us at welookshitup at gmail.com. You can send us ideas for your future movies, things that we should do next, as well as generally in our episodes, we do a segment called Fake Facts. So you can send us your fake facts and we'll read those on the show. Thank you so much to former APD negotiator Rick Shirley for talking to us about what he saw. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. This is We Look Shit Up. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.